turn this morning to the New Testament book of Colossians as we begin a uh, new series of studies in this important book. If you're using uh, the Bibles we have here, go to page 953, Colossians. Just so you know, Colossians is about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is increasingly uh, controversial in our culture. It's okay to be religious. In fact, if you, you tell a friend that you go to church every weekend, uh, I think they'll be okay with that. Good for you, they might say. But if you tell them that you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God and that salvation is found only through this man Jesus, uh, your approval ratings might go down a bit. Jesus Christ is controversial because Jesus Christ is exclusive. Uh, yet we came today to worship Christ. We've just been singing about him Worshiping Him. We seek to follow Him. We have put our faith in Him. He is central to all that we are as a person, as a believer in Christ. About 30 years after Jesus died for our sin, rose again, and ascended back to heaven, this message of salvation through Christ was circulating through the Roman Empire, largely through the Apostle Paul. And Paul's controversial message about Jesus so angered the, the religious establishment, which had uh, actually political power, especially in Jerusalem and Judea, that they arrested him, hoping to put him away for good. But Paul, in a unique, shrewd wisdom, appealed to Caesar, because he was a Roman citizen, and he could have a hearing in Rome before the emperor, Nero, at the time. And so Paul went to Rome, and there he was held. Uh, it was a unique kind of a prison situation because Acts 28 tells us that he was under house arrest. He couldn't leave, and he was constantly guarded, but people could come and see him. And so what did he do during that time? he continued to serve the cause of Jesus Christ. Because you see, it was a long wait to have your appeal heard before the emperor. In fact, it's likely that he never did get to be heard because he was released later from this imprisonment. But Acts 2 tells us he was there for two years. So what is a servant of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ? What do you do for two years? Well, Philippians 1 tells us that he continued to share the gospel with those guards that came every time the shift changed. And he continued to share Jesus Christ with them. He also continued to receive visitors, many of them colleagues, many of the people he was training to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He just kept being a disciple or a follower of Christ, a disciple who made disciples. It's really what we're about as a church as well. But there's one other thing that he was able to do during these important years that he was uh, imprisoned. He wrote letters. Four of them are inspired letters that are part of our Bible now 2,000 years later. Colossians, 
in a similar uh, letter or epistle called Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon were written during this prison sentence during about A.D. 60. So we jump into this important letter, which tells us who Jesus is and then how that makes a difference. That's the message our world needs because it'll transform their life in eternity. It's the message we as believers need because submitting to the supremacy of Jesus Christ will be key to everything that God is desiring to do in wonderful ways in our life. So let's jump into the opening of the letter, which in a typical fashion for Paul uh, really contains up front the sender and the receiver. It's like we're looking at the outside of an envelope, but with some uh, description. And just a little heads up, uh, the first half of our message today could feel a little bit more like school than church. Because we need to understand the setting and who is writing to who and what's going on. And uh, so please understand, as you, as, you understand, as you look at Scripture, for us to be uh, impacted by God because it's his word, we still have to have a knowledge base of understanding what is going on. And so we read that the sender is Paul, verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to, receiver, to the holy and faithful, some of you have the word saints and faithful, brothers in Christ at Colossae. Colossae is the name of a, a, a city in uh, Asia at that time. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. So that's the opening uh, greeting. He identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, uh, we'll see a little later, one of the unique aspects of this letter is that these people didn't personally know Paul. And so in this case, he's writing to people where, that need to understand his authority. And his authority is based in the will of God who called him to be an apostle. Apostle is a unique term to describe someone God commissioned, particularly in that first century, before there even was a Bible, to have God's complete authority to speak for God. So he was an apostle, something that is unique to that time. Sent by God. Specifically, in fact, when Paul was commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself, Acts 9... Uh, he said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, meaning non-Jews. Romans 11, Paul embraced that title and said, I am a, a messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles, especially the non-Jewish world. And he says, Paul, an apostle, and Timothy. Now, don't be confused. Only Paul was a prisoner, not Timothy. And really, only Paul was the writer, inspired writer of this book, not Timothy. But Timothy was such a close associate and co-worker and companion to him that he couldn't help but mention him. And I, I kind of envision that Paul is, is here in this house, arrest, sitting next to Timothy as he writes this letter to the Colossian believers. So picture at least these two men, if not some others, who are part of kind of the, the disciples of, and followers of, of Paul, uh, sitting there, and you've got like four guards from, from the Roman uh, police or something that are guarding him. The, the, the palace guard was a foursome. And, and they're kind of milling around wondering, what am I doing here guarding this harmless man? 
Timothy is a unique uh, story. Uh, to understand where we are in A.D. 60, let's back up about 10 years, because about 10 years before is when Paul met Timothy. As Paul went to, uh, on his first missionary journey, he came to the city of Lystra. Now, the time in Lystra where he shared the gospel didn't end so well for Paul, Well, you could say it did, because eventually the people turned against him for his message and stoned him and left him for dead. However, God either raised him from the dead or else simply healed him and he was able to move on. Timothy was there. And it's at that time that it seems that Timothy came to believe in Christ because I would think that watching someone willing to die for the message of Jesus Christ would have an impact in him. That's ten years before he writes Colossians. Paul comes back to Lystra, Timothy's town, in the second missionary journey about five years later. And there it says he meets a young disciple named Timothy, or he begins to get to know him at least, Acts 16. And he recruits Timothy to go along with him. And so Timothy joins as a young man, perhaps even a teenager, and he begins gets to get trained by Paul so that he can be used. And, and Paul, sometimes in the second and third missionary journeys, would be sending him ahead or leaving him behind, kind of just being a true uh, uh, associate in ministry uh, for him. Now that brings you to this time and Timothy is faithful to Paul, encouraging Paul, still being trained by Paul. And if you were to advance the the time uh, calendar one more set of five years, you would find that uh, now Timothy is really much on his own in ministry. Paul has now commissioned him to lead a major ministry there in Ephesus. And so we have the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy. A couple ways that the story of Timothy encourages us. One is that spiritual progress takes time. If you can just watch Timothy's life kind of in five-year segments, kind of gives us maybe some encouragement because we should be able to look back at different five-year segments of our life and see, you know, God's been at work. And I've been, I've been in this discipleship process where I get to know Christ better. I've been hanging around people who are, are more mature than me in Christ, and I can, I can be growing. We need to be thinking about our spiritual progress all the time. The other thing that is encouraging about Timothy and Paul's setting of this epistle or letter is that persecution need not halt spiritual progress at all. In fact, I'm convinced God does some of his his very best work when he is opposed. And so we can be encouraged that although... uh, Jesus Christ is more controversial, and the message of the exclusive message of Jesus is going to be perhaps more criticized and persecuted in the coming generation. Take heart, because God's going to be at work in special ways, and I'm convinced that there will be more young Timothys who will be proclaiming the gospel of Christ clearly, and it could be that God is working in the heart of some young people hearing this today, and in some of our ministry programs And God is stirring in their heart to have a special ministry with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to be praying that that happens. That's part of our responsibility. The sender is Paul alongside Timothy, our brother. The receiver is to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. 
The first term, holy, or is actually the word saint. Many of your Bible translations will use the word saints. So who are the saints at Colossae? We're accustomed to the word saints being used in our culture to describe some top-tier Christian from some generation past who is now you know, given this title saint. You know who saints are here? Every single person who has put their faith in Christ. All believers are saints. The word saints means to be cleansed or purified or made holy. You go, oh, that's not me. But then you don't, miss, then you don't understand the, the, the impact of Jesus Christ on our life when we put our faith in him. Because when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared holy. So that our record in heaven is now spotless. Because we put our faith in the one who is perfect and the one who paid the penalty for our sin, now our status in heaven is absolutely clean and purified. So if you have put your faith in Christ, you're a saint. We have here today, you know, St. Bob, St. Dean. You don't have to call each other that, but that's how God sees you. God sees you holy like that. Secondly, he describes them as faithful. So if holy is how God sees us, our record is cleared now by faith in Christ, faithful is how other people will see us. Faithful brothers in Christ. So faithful brothers is describing our relationship to the family. When God saved us, he placed us in a family a church. The church universal is all believers, but it only, church only happens in you know, local franchises. So that's what Open Door Bible Church is. A, a place where God has called together those who believe in him. And they are regarded here as faithful. It's a, it's a genuine affirmation or compliment. Faithful uh, could refer to faithful to God. It could be refer to faithful to each other. Uh, I think likely both. But we are spiritual siblings, but we're spiritual siblings. It says we are brothers in Christ. In Christ is a big deal in the New Testament for the Apostle Paul especially. A phrase he uses often, never more frequently than you find it in Colossians. In Colossians, you'll find this little phrase, in Christ, or a pronoun, in him, in whom, 19 times. And it's describing in a special way how Paul sees who we are now if we, have, if we have placed our faith in Christ. We are now connected to Christ. So spiritual brothers and sisters, yes, but spiritual brothers and sisters because we are each joined to Christ. Again, this is about our status. Sometimes I'll use the term in this study, uh, positional truth. That means this, this is secure. This is who I am. This is my identity now. I am a brother and a sister, but I'm in Christ. It's basically a code word, someone has said, a code word for our new life. And, and, and we should expect to be encouraged in the book of Colossians at how God sees us. Joined inextricably to him. from Paul, to the church in Colossae. And now we find that uh, 
There is some uniqueness to this letter when it comes to Colossae. Because Colossae is, is the only church he wrote a letter to that Paul didn't plant or start that church. If you read the second half of the book of Acts, which chronicles the whole story of the development of the early church, from chapters 13 to the very end, chapter 28, you never find any mention of Colossae. In spite of all these journeys, you may have seen the maps of Paul going all these places, Colossae is never mentioned. This is a good time to actually pinpoint the geography and see what exactly, where it lies in relation to the rest of the New Testament. So here we have the Mediterranean Sea, and uh, Israel essentially is this rectangle. Israel is uh, where uh, Jesus spent all of his uh, days on earth. His whole ministry was there. If you were with us in our, in our study of, of Ezra, you know that this was kind of on the other end of the map we kept looking at because uh, the people, the, rewinding 600 years and 500 years, uh, the people were coming from Persia, Babylon, to Jerusalem, to Israel. Well, this in the New Testament goes the other way, and in the... Jerusalem is where the church started. So the life of Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, and then in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit descends and begins to indwell every believer, launching this amazing church age. And the church begins. Where we drop down now in Colossians is in Rome, he's writing from prison 30 years later. The ministry of Paul in those years between takes place essentially here. His church planting ministry, all those different locations, Philippi, Colossae, Corinth, Ephesus, all those cities are found in this area. And the new home church really for Paul became Antioch. That's where he would leave and come back to each time he started on a journey. So here is Colossae. Never mentioned in the book of Acts. So we know Paul actually was never there because take a look at your text while I keep the map there. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. So he says, there's, there's a bunch of you guys who I've not met personally. Laodicea, Colossae. The gospel had gone there, but it wasn't because of Paul. Did he ever pass through Colossae? Very likely uh, he did. It's on a major route through there. And we do know that he knew one other individual there, named, a man named Philemon, the book of Philemon in the New Testament. And when the letter uh, of a Colossians was delivered to the church at Colossae, uh, the same guy delivering it, a guy named Tychicus, also brought a letter personally to Philemon, which makes a fascinating study alongside this. So if Paul didn't plant this church or know these people, how did Paul hear about them? Well, many times the scripture answers the questions we have of it. Look at chapter 1, look ahead a bit to verse 7. Referring to the gospel, he said, You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Okay, so it was Epaphras who told Paul about the church in Colossae. Why would Epaphras know so much? Go to the end of the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 12, and we find out why Epaphras knows about them. Epaphras, who is one of you, 
Any servant of Christ Jesus sends his greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. So Epaphras is the, a hometown guy who has somehow come to uh, be alongside Paul as a co-worker and who most likely planted then this church. How might that have happened? We have another clue uh, that gives us a, a good idea, at least, in the book of uh, Acts. We believe that... Um, Probably this happened let me go to, from the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is about 100 plus miles to the west of Colossae. And Ephesus is a place where Paul spent considerable time. He had a long layover. And it might tell us how the gospel got to Colossae. Acts 19. And he, Paul in Ephesus, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul stops his travels for a substantial period in Ephesus, two years, perhaps two years plus three months, and basically now the people are coming to him. And it's because of that that people are coming and being trained essentially in a Bible school setting, and as he trains them, they are going out on ministry trips. It's very possible that uh, Epaphras may have been one of those. Let's look back at that map. So Ephesus is why the gospel went to all of Asia. And so we can just kind of uh, think through that maybe, you know, Epaphras from Colossae, uh, maybe he went to work in Ephesus, which was a larger commercial seaport, and uh, in some way he is told about Paul and goes and hears Paul and comes to faith in Christ and begins to get a burden for ministry to his own people who need to hear about Jesus Christ. And he goes there, and the church begins. And so everybody is hearing about it eventually. We see a, an important process here of making disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. What we are learning and knowing in our spiritual growth has to be passed on to others. This coming Wednesday, the movable walls will be arriving and installed in uh, our new building, which we call what? The Discipleship Center. And that's an intentional name because our desire is not just to make things more pleasant, but our desire is that what happens when we have these precious times of, uh, together an hour here or a couple hours here is that we would be growing in our relationship with God, making spiritual progress so we could have impact in somebody else and it continues to be passed on. Because Paul did that to Timothy and it kept growing. He did that for Epaphras and it kept growing. Someone has had an impact, probably a whole lot of people, in your spiritual progress. And the serious question you have to ask yourself is how are you having an impact in helping somebody else know Jesus and follow Jesus. It starts in your family, 
Think of your friend group. Think of your church. Think of where God placed you at work. But God wants to use you and plant in you a ministry desire for the gospel of Jesus Christ like Epaphras who said, I've got to go to my hometown and tell them as well. To the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now, these are favorite terms that Paul uses in uh, almost every one of his letters. Peace is a typical Jewish greeting. Paul was Jewish. Uh, Shalom in Hebrew, of course. But uh, he thinks of peace from God the Father. So he's thinking of, this is the peace that I'm excited about, that I'm at peace with God. Grace describes like the, the, the keynote of Paul's life. Everything, you, you read the scriptures and you experience Paul's overwhelming sense of grace because he knew who he was and he knew who God had made him now. Because Paul never forgot that he was once known by his Hebrew name, Saul, and he was a persecutor of the church and in Acts 7, when, when the, the first true persecution broke, broke out in Jerusalem and they stoned Stephen to death for proclaiming Christ, Paul was cheering them on. And in Acts 9, we find that Paul was the one who, who took up this mantle of opposing Jesus Christ. And he is the one who is, it says, getting both men and women, moms and dads, taking them out of their homes and putting them in prison because they proclaim Jesus Christ. But on that day in Acts chapter 9, God suddenly stopped him and his entourage heading north, and a blazing light appeared, and Jesus himself, the resurrected, glorified Jesus, spoke to him and said, Who are you persecuting? And on that day, Paul understood the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And because he understood that this Jesus who had lived on earth was actually God in the flesh, now resurrected, he was also his Savior, and he was also his Master. And from that time on, Paul began to follow, submit to the supremacy of Christ and faithfully proclaimed the gospel. He would write later to Timothy, I am the chief of sinners. And he's thinking of the grace of God. He says, I'm the chief of sinners, but I received mercy so that I could be an example of God's patience for those who would receive eternal life. He says, I am just a poster child of God's grace. I deserve nothing, but I've been given eternal life. And Paul never, ever got over that. Who would you be? if you had not come to faith in Christ? If, if every sinful weakness of your life was, would simply be allowed to, to have full course, who would you be? What would have happened to that most common fear of dying that mankind lives with? How would you ever dealt with that if you had not put your faith in Christ and became confident of heaven? It's all because of grace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Well, that's the outside of the envelope. (laughs) Now in verse 3 through 5, Paul opens the letter. This is what he wants to tell them. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, 
Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. If you, if you were following that, you might have heard some common words Paul loves, faith, hope, and love. Mostly we are acquainted with that from 1 Corinthians 13. You probably heard it at a wedding. Now abide faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Uh, Paul looks at them in a different order and with a different perspective here. And he says, we thank God for you guys there in Colossae, believers in Christ, because we know about your faith in Christ, your love for each other that comes from the hope you have of heaven. So let's think through that. This is what he is grateful for. And while the While he says it in terms of gratitude towards God, did you catch that he is clearly affirming their spiritual progress? In this letter, he will have to address some serious concerns he has for them. That they they might be getting deceived by false teaching. It's not like this is a church without problems, but do you notice that he first affirms them? That's what people do who care about people and care about making disciples. They affirm They think the best. They point and they tell people the best they know of them. Are you an affirmer? When's the last time you affirmed your your spouse for what you appreciate about him, about her? Your kids. It is so life-giving to hear those words. Even the people you work around. Affirming. We thank God, the Father, Father, our Lord Lord Jesus Christ, that you have this faith in Christ Jesus, you have this love for each other. He thanks God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you notice it, but every word Paul chooses under inspiration of God is filled with rich meaning. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul thinks of God, the Father... He cannot avoid thinking of Jesus Christ, whom he had met personally on that Damascus road in that blazing light. And so he understood fully the nature, and he's going to get into that in chapter 1, the nature of Jesus Christ, who is actually God, though he was actually here physically, and yet though he is equal and part of this unique mystery of the triune God, yet Jesus is distinct as an individual. So I thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, it's an assumption that's what disciple makers do. They pray for people. Because anytime you want to have an impact in someone's life, you realize that you don't have any way of having an impact in their life unless God's at work. And so we pray for each other. And I trust that you pray for each other here in the church family. You pray for your church family. That's somehow somehow plugged into something regular in your life. One one simple way, uh, call the office and and get the email prayer chain. Uh, That's just kind of like a a shotgun approach, different needs in the church. Even better, though, is if you connect to some kind of a small group, an adult Bible fellowship, Someplace where you actually know the people well, you're, what they're praying, you've heard them describe what they're going through, and you, as you get to know them through the weeks, 
You begin to know what their spiritual needs are. And so if you care about their growth and progress, you know how to pray for them. Paul thanked God for a church family he had never met, but through Epaphras he began to understand what their spiritual needs were. But he said, I thank God because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and love for the saints. Those are kind of an obvious two-sided Uh, Two sides of a coin of spiritual progress. One is a growing faith in Christ upward and a growing love for all the saints horizontally outward. Spiritual growth always involves both. This is not a multiple choice question. If you're growing in your faith in Christ, you will love others better. You can't just love others and then without knowing Christ. True love comes from an understanding of Christ. So let's take them one at a time. I've heard of your growing faith in Christ. Faith in Christ can sometimes become very kind of vague for us. Faith in Christ is to mean to rely on him. Rely on him. And the question that might come to our mind is, he talking about relying on Christ for eternal life or relying on Christ for daily life. I think that Paul here is deliberately uniting the concepts because he's looking at the Colossian believers' lives as a whole and says, I have heard of your faith in Christ. Past tense and present tense. Let's just try to understand this a little bit. It's a little bit like a dot and a line because Christ is central to our lives. He needs to be trusted in one initial momentous issue and then to be trusted with everything else. The one initial uh, issue of faith in Christ is to trust him for eternal life, trusting Jesus Christ for salvation from sin. And so John and Apostle Paul will both speak of uh, putting your faith in Christ, believing in him and having eternal life. And that's where it all starts. That's That's your spiritual birthday when you understand that you are saved not by good works, which is the common religious idea, but you are saved by what happened on the cross when God the Father punished Jesus the Son and paid your penalty for sin. And you say, that's it. I've got to trust in what he did for me, not what I do for him. That's the starting point. But there's more to faith in Christ because if you put your faith in him for salvation, you will now begin a life in which you need to trust him with life on earth, trusting him with daily struggles in a sinful world. And so one follows the, others, the other most naturally. This is actually my rough draft of this chart because as I rethought it, it doesn't really look like this. It really looks a little bit more like this. Is that a little more description of your life? <laughs> right. It's, it's, I trust him here and then I kind of don't trust him and then I'm worried about this and then this new crisis comes up. But you know what? There will always be something in your life for which you'll have to trust him. And so I don't know what that is for you now, whether it's money, whether it's health, whether it's kids, whether it's emotions, whatever it might be, but there is something that you will need to trust him with because he cares about his relationship with you so much. And so we need to have the grace to trust him more. And the connection that I think that Paul is complimenting, affirming in their life, is this. 
If you trust in Jesus for the big thing, you can trust him with what seems big. That's why I think we need to think of this as a whole, as a characteristic of our life. If indeed we have put our faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life, you are trusting him with what will happen for the rest of eternity. That's a pretty big thing. Can we trust him with what happens on each of these days on the calendar? Obviously the answer is yes, and he affirms that indeed I can trust him with that. Some people, as you're hearing this, perhaps you are, you are first wrestling with the first one. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ for your eternal destiny? I just trust that through uh, reading in the book of Colossians, as well as other places in the New Testament, but we will see that Christ has sufficiently paid for your sin, that if you put your faith in him, you can know for sure you're going to heaven. That's the first issue. But for many of us, the the main issue will be trusting Christ with the stuff in our life. Because he took care of the big one, we know he can take care of that which seems so big to us. I've heard, he said, of your faith in Christ. And I've heard of your love for all the saints. Remember who saints are? It's the people sitting around you. The love that he describes is uh, something we've studied a few series back when we looked at the one another phrase of the New Testament, and there is no phrase in the New Testament, uh, there's no one another statement that's used more often than the term love one another. And we found that that came, we came to find that that meant not uh, how do I feel about people, but rather what will I give up and live sacrificially for that person. Love's about sacrifice. And he says, I see that in you because as you submit to the rule of Christ in your life, you will begin to see other believers differently. Here's our, here's our challenge, our problem relationally. Christ loves everyone unconditionally. We have a hard time with that. It's a little bit like this, especially in winter now those of you who wear glasses like I do, what happens if you uh, have been in the extreme cold and you walk into a warm house? Fog up, right? And you'll be fogged up until your glasses begin to acclimate to the new environment. And it it warms and it has to dry from the condensation or whatever is happening there. And so it takes a little while to acclimate to that. But see, the way God sees everyone in the room in his family is he sees them with complete, unconditional love all the time. Remember, we're in Christ, completely forgiven, called saints. And God is, that's just his perspective on us. And we walk into that room with our glasses fogged up. Because some of these people have hurt us. They've disappointed us. They've failed. We've been jealous of them. We've resented something. We've had some kind of a prejudice against them. And so our glasses are fogged, and it will take a while. That's where this spiritual progress thing comes in. It'll take us a while before we acclimate to what? To seeing them like God sees them. Many times I think we try to uh, love one another. I just got to try harder. And it all is trying to come from inside instead of saying, no, what I really need to do is acclimate to the way God is seeing these people. 1 John 
Jesus, or rather, referring to Jesus, John wrote, this commandment we have from him, that whoever loves God must also love his brother. There needs to be a consistency between how God loves us, we love him, this relationship, and now this relationship that we have with all the saints begins to coincide and parallel our love for him. So Paul is thanking God for the reports he's heard from uh, his dear friend Epaphras and and who knew them so well, and they're being transformed upward towards Christ and, and outward towards one another. Where does the motivation come to be growing in your faith in Christ and your love for each other? Verse 5 is this faith and love, the faith and love that spring from the hope that's stored up for you in heaven. Uh, most of your translations, verse 5 begins with the word because, exactly. We have faith and love. We have faith towards Christ, love towards all the saints because of our hope in heaven. Uh, Paul's writing style is to use very long sentences. <laughs> in the Greek language, actually, uh, verses 3 through 8 are all one single sentence, just tied together with with uh, different prepositions and conjunctions. And, and so you kind of have to sort that all out. And so in our English Bibles, uh, generally it's even wise that the translators are kind of chopping it up into a couple of sentences so we get the connection. I say that because the word because is what introduces verse 5 so that we understand that the motivation, the, the result of hope in heaven is that we would have faith and love. So we will not have faith and love unless we had the hope of heaven. Faith towards Christ, love for one another, is tied inextricably to our hope or confidence of heaven. So what the way it ends up affects the way we live now. Eternity affects earth, is the way he's saying it. So we have the hope of heaven. The word hope is unique uh, in the New Testament, because it doesn't really work the way we usually use the word hope. We use the word hope for wishful thinking. Uh, you know, I hope the Packers win the Super Bowl, and, and that's just more of a wish kind of a thing. But the hope of the New Testament is more like the five-year-old who is told that on a certain date on the calendar, there's going to be a birthday party for him or her. And, 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 and that child is not hoping that they'll have a birthday party. They are counting on it. They may not know exactly what the presents are, but they know it's going to be their day and they're going to be treated very special. And so they're living with a confident expectation. Heaven is our hope in that way. It is our confident expectation. And so God is motivating us to trust him and to love others by saying, you realize we are in a forever relationship. There is no ending point to my blessing on your life. I have, I have handled the most common fear of mankind by the cross. You put your faith in me. We're going to be in heaven forever. And so knowing that is supposed to impact how much you trust Christ for daily life and how much you love each other in the body of Christ. Hope will feed your faith. Because as we said, if he handled the big thing that gets us to heaven, he can handle the things that seem big. Hope will feed our love 
like this, I think. The believer in the body of Christ, another part of the church that you struggle with the most relationally, they're going to be there in heaven with you forever. And you can't avoid them. And you will love them perfectly. Because heaven is bathed in forgiveness. And knowing that can begin to, again, inform our attitude towards people that are difficult in the body of Christ because they're still in progress as well. So Paul says, your love for all the saints and your faith in Jesus Christ will grow as you keep your eyes on how we're going to spend eternity. And so later on in Colossians chapter 3, he will say, chapter 3, verse 1, Since then you have raised, been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated on the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. It just became part of the fabric of his mindset to think about the hope of heaven. God wants us to grow upward, outward, as we embrace the supremacy of Christ. As I've been reading Colossians recently and seeing the affirming words of Paul, it's reminded me of Open Door Bible Church because it seems that Paul just could look at them with a sense of gratitude that there's a, there's a lot of good progress, spiritual maturity, stability there in Colossae. And I've been privileged to uh, watch us be a part of a church family where faith in Christ is an issue of clarity. You understand what Christ did for you. Your faith is clearly in Christ. And I've, I've, I've seen so many walk through deep waters trusting him more and more and more. And then, of course, we've also seen those who are not with us because they are in heaven. And so we get to see some of them trusting in their faith in Christ as they come to those final days. And that's what it means to have faith in Christ. And I, I see that. And I see the love for all the saints. You just, you just hear a comment that as people have chosen to connect with one another, this, this love between one another stirs and, and, and someone sends an encouraging text and someone is providing a meal and someone is babysitting and someone is giving them a gift and someone... As we connect, we care. And it's exciting to see that happen in the body of Christ. It's a part of our spiritual progress And we will only continue in our spiritual progress as we submit to the complete supremacy of Jesus Christ, who is both Lord and Savior. Let's pray together and then we celebrate together what he did for us on the cross through our time of communion. Father, we are just so grateful for all you did for us. We uh, cannot imagine the plan you had in eternity that you would Uh, know that as you created us for relationship that we would turn against you and all would sin and come short of your standards. 
but you knew it and you planned this amazing gift of salvation through Jesus, your eternal Son. So we thank you that we can put our faith in you. We thank you that you call us into a relationship with you and then with one another. And I thank you for the richness of those blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.